We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. We have talked at length about uh, the ongoing development in downtown Hamilton and, of course, a big part of that, the entertainment precinct and uh, the refurb of the First Ontario Centre. To talk more about all of this and where we are with the entertainment precinct and the concerns of some of the uh, citizenry, PJ Marchetti is with us, CEO of Carmen's Group, President of the Hamilton Urban Precinct Entertainment Group, and here now. PJ, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Doing well. Thank you, Scott. So uh, the, the same question keeps coming up, and maybe you can uh, clarify this for everyone. We keep hearing things about timeline and such. Is there any more information you can give us on a timeline of when this is all starting, when we can expect it to be completed? So at present, the arena is slated to close in December of this year, and we have a desired target construction start for January of 2024, so obviously this coming January. And from there, Scott, you know, we're anticipating uh, anywhere from 18 to 20 months worth of construction based on our recent conversations uh, with our with our development partners. And so, uh, you know, we recognize that, you know, we've got another uh, seven months uh, of, of, of the year to to enjoy some great programming at First Ontario Centre. Uh, it, the, the venue will close down, obviously, during that construction phase. And we're looking forward to reopening the venue and, and it being a, a beautiful uh, new community asset that the public can enjoy with uh, a lot of great programming uh, and events. And, uh, and so it'll be a bit of short-term pain for long-term gain. Uh, but we're excited about, uh, about getting the project going. We know that it's going to be a significant project for the community. We're, we're forecasting uh, $155 million in, in, in taxpayer savings over 30 years, uh, you know, with the arena specifically, a minimum investment of $50 million. And so so we believe that uh, that this is, uh, you know, an exciting thing for the city of Hamilton. Uh, I know when you start these projects, it's kind of tough to put a, an end date on them because you don't know what you're going to find between point A and point B. But what about a closing date or an opening date? We'll say reopening. So, so the goal is for the, the venue to reopen in 2025 and, you know, it'll be the second half of 2025, uh, depending on, you know, on specific, uh, specific details. Uh, but the goal is to, to have uh, a 20 month uh, construction window. Uh, and, and that, you know, that could, you know, usually, um, you know, if all things work out well, uh, get achieved earlier. Uh, obviously, we're working with, um, with the Oakview Group, a well-known arena developer, and they just completed a project in Baltimore uh, that, uh, that took them 12 months. It's a slightly smaller renovation in terms of number of seats, but it was a $200 million renovation that they delivered in Baltimore, and they were able to deliver that in, in 12 months. So, so based on the fact that, uh, that you know, work could get done in a more aggressive time frame, we're confident that, that a 20-month window is realistic, which would bring us to... Um, the second half of, of 2025. What about between now and then? Because obviously many were concerned that this is delayed for the next series of months for obvious reasons that we've talked about uh, in the past. What can be done during that time in the meantime to make sure that once you know the doors are officially closed, that boom, we hit the ground running here? Well, so we're, that's a great, great point, great question, and one that we're obviously discussing intensely right now. But in terms of 
downtown programming, downtown activation, a few things will be happening. Uh, first, the first Ontario Concert Hall and Hamilton Convention Centre uh, will both still be open. The priority was getting the arena renovated first. Uh, but those two venues will remain open and there will be conventions uh, still coming in, uh, different concerts and musical events and comedy events at the concert hall happening as well. And we're going to be uh, discussing with Live Nation and uh, and the Tiger Cats the idea of uh, enhanced programming at Tim Hortons Field uh, during those uh, during those, um, you know, that time when when First Ontario Centre will be under renovation. Uh, in the next couple of weeks, we're going to be having a community roundtable uh, with the Chamber of Commerce and a few other downtown uh, stakeholders to discuss how do we ensure that there's going to be robust programming and activation in downtown Hamilton during the construction uh, phase of, of the venue so that that way the restaurants and the different businesses that rely on downtown activity, that there is still activity happening for the benefit of their businesses. So this is a very important conversation for us, and we plan to bring the Chamber, Tourism Hamilton, the City of Hamilton, other stakeholders to the table to brainstorm how we really keep the core active during the renovation phase. You're speaking about the area around the pre- or around uh, First Ontario and such, and, and how this is going to change or adapt to uh, the new renos. What about the Salvation Army and their situation? Ooh, update is there. So, so the Salvation Army obviously owned that site on York Boulevard. They retain full rights to that site, and and we Hupeg acknowledges. Uh, the important services that the Army provides to the community. We understand that they need to maintain operational stability for the benefit of all the patrons that utilize the facility. Uh, but but we know that um, that there are many other downtown investors and developers who have approached the Army independently of HUPEG. Obviously, other parties have every, every right to contact them. And, and we've had positive discussions with the Salvation Army uh, in the past. We understand that they are conducting their own internal review about their future needs uh, and so we're respectful of their process and we remain committed to working collaboratively with them in the event that they would like to work with UPEG or others you know we, we you know we recognize that um, that that facility is very old it's 60 70 years old uh, the, the, the army ha- have said you know that that um, uh, the programming needs uh, uh, for for that facility may change over time, and so so they're going through their own independent exercise. We want to remain respectful of uh, of them and their organization, and and be there to work with them at any point in the future, uh, because we know that the, they do provide important services for the community. So if I'm going to understand that right, PJ, and I, I understand what you're saying, I'm going to try to say it as delicately as I can. The site can be better used for other things for both parties. Uh, for sure. And but at the same time, the Salvation Army, they're in control of their own destiny. They obviously yeah. own that venue. It's it's within their full right to do, uh, you know, whatever they believe is best for their future. So only they could. Uh, answer what it is right. that they want for their future, and and we're, we've we've just extended uh, our support to to being there and being a community ally and partner with them, uh, you know, regardless of of what their plans are. Uh, we're community minded, and at the spirit of of Hupeg is is to collaborate, uh, you know, with key partners, and so we've we've shared with them that we'll be there for them and understands uh, that they need to go through.
through their process and do their due diligence. P.J. Marchetti with us, CEO of the Carmen's Group, president of the Hamilton Urban Precinct Entertainment Group, talking about the Renos at First Ontario Centre, giving us an update. P.J., thanks for the time. Be well. No problem. Thank you, Scott. Cheers. We certainly know in this post-pandemic uh, world how difficult it has become to pay for things, everything going through the roof, uh, inflation, interest rates, what have you. And it's been pretty tough for the last little while coming out of the COVID-19 pandemic as uh, as we've seen costs go up and up and up. And one of the sidebars to all of that, what about your kids' education? Another thing that's just going to take some money and a new... Uh, poll by Leger is out talking about saving for kids education 81% of us believe it is their duty parents believe it is their duty to help pay for the post education experience 81% 52% are willing to go into debt to make that happen I wonder how many actually do and 61% are actually willing to postpone their retirement to make sure that uh, the kids get through school and again what was possible even five years ago seems almost impossible now considering costs going through the roof to talk more about all of this don fox is with us executive financial consultant with the fox group ig private wealth management and of course host of planning your financial future every saturday morning right here on chml don thanks for the time hope you're well doing very well scott yourself so far so good have you seen people uh, actually alter their retirement plans due to having to pay for the kids education uh, absolutely. This is uh, nothing new. It's uh, especially since, you know, you look back to when you and I went to university or college versus in the cost at that time, even after inflation, they're way ahead of what they would have been, you know, 20, 30 years forward. The inflation rate on education has been known to be around 7% a year all the way through versus say 3% for, you know, normal goods and products. So yeah, it's a, it's a common theme. I've also seen where one parent who may have been a stay-at-home mom or dad decided to go back part-time to help fund for kids' education just to oh, help, wow. you know, get them through that that time in their life. It's it's almost an obligation, really. So you've been saying that this has been going up steadily since way back when. I mean, it's it's just con- consistently rising. Oh, absolutely. You you think of, uh, you know, tuition when I first started was about $1,000. Um, just short the very first semester yeah. at McMaster here. And uh, that same course, uh, you know, we're, we're also talking 38 years later, but that same course would be about $7,000 for, for the same term. So, yeah, it, it's, it's gone up t- tremendously over the years. And again, a far greater pace than average inflation. And obviously, this is all being compounded by the fact that we're seeing inflation and just the tightening of, of, of the belt strings that we're seeing uh, in the last few months. Well, inflation in general is only hurts us more because now your dollars are being stretched even further. And, you know, there's there's different types of inflation. So the ones you keep hearing about, it used to say be around 8% inflation, and it's down to almost 4%. But there's the other side that, again, is, is goes hand in hand with inflation, and that's the interest rates. And so right now, the cost of borrowing, and we just got announced uh, yesterday that, you know, the, the prime lending rate has gone up another quarter, 1%. Yeah. Every time they do that, you're adding to the debt burden on uh, the monthly bills for any, anybody who's got a monthly, um, say, a variable rate mortgage or a line of credit, which is based on the prime lending rate. And so if people are borrowing for education also, this makes it even that much more difficult. 
Those who were wait uh, till later. It was funny. We, uh, my wife was telling me anecdotally of a story that uh, they were talking about this sort of thing, and one of uh, the coworkers said, "My kid's going to get a a sports scholarship or something like that." Uh, there's a lot of that <laughs> dreaming, isn't there? Oh boy, you know, I had a son in a couple rep sports, and that was always the shuttle butter. Always, oh, you know what? We're going to get a scholarship in lacrosse mm-hmm. or soccer or hockey, and. You know, there might have been a couple, you know, over all those years that did and good for them. But even then, it's that's it's often not a free ride. And if you get 50 percent scholarship, by the time you add up the difference in exchange rate and everything, say to the U.S., well, you end up paying the same as it is in Canada anyway. So even though it sounds great, it often is not the case. Uh, you know what? If you son or daughter does get a free ride, all the power to them. But I would rather see people be fully prepared for the cost of post-secondary. And think of that as a bonus if they do get a scholarship of some sort. So give us some tips what we should be doing. And obviously, we've talked about this many times on the show that, you know, as soon as your child is born, start putting stuff away. <laughs> but not everybody's done that. Uh, some tips to get through this. You know that you nailed number one right there, Scott. It's it, it's not a surprise that they get to eight, the age eighteen or seventeen when they start the university, but time flies by, yeah. and all of a sudden they're ten years old, and you're thinking, "Holy smokes, we really haven't done too much for their education." And then seven years later, boom, um, we, you got to come up with twenty thousand dollars to get through a year of university. So, yeah, start early as often, and and again, if you add thirty six thousand dollars over from day one to age eighteen. You know, you're going to get $7,200 of government grant from the mm-hmm. RESP added yeah. to this for free. Now, the child, uh, when they go to school, has to pay tax on this. But it is the best program. Anytime you're going to get free money from the government for your child to go to university or college, any post-secondary, even if it's to the U.S., it is a great advantage for you and every bit helps. So then you, on top of this, you get the compounding of 18 years. So you get the growth side of it and you get the compounding on the government's money on top of this. So, hmm. you know what, for those that are just had newborns, there's a bit of a, another little baby boom here happening from, um, I guess the millennials are now having kids. So you're getting another section coming mm-hmm. up right now. Um, I'm seeing some of my, um, my own kids, friends are now having kids. So you're seeing that happen, but um, yeah, get in there. And you know where, if you can't afford it, maybe the grandparents can because hmm. their mortgage is often paid for. And what a great way to help your grandkids for their education. How do we talk to about an RESP? Is this something we should be doing at a bank? Is this, do we need a financial planner for this? Well, they do have them at the banks. Um, I'm obviously very biased here, Scott. So a financial planner would be the route to go. There is different types of RESPs. There's a scholarship program, which you often see at the grocery store or or perhaps a cold call. I highly do not recommend those. There are the banks have uh, what they call family plans and they're decent. Yeah, nothing wrong with that. But again, it still comes down to you you need to invest in certain types. We've recently come up with a, a new RESP program where as the child gets older, the investments become more and more conservative so that you're not taking undue risk as they're approaching that age of uh, post-secondary. So it's a great program. It should be part of every financial plan if you have kids of course and you know you have your you have your your retirement plan and you have your tax plan and your cash flow plan you need a, a an education plan for the kids so yes um uh, you know in our, 
we're all uh, certified financial planners here, and it is always part of our conversation about registered education savings plans. All right. I can't let you go without asking you about the interest rate hike uh, yesterday. Surprised at that. Everybody thought it was kind of going to hold steady. What are your thoughts? I, you got me there too, Scott. I thought it was going to hold steady too. I, I personally think uh, the government jumped the gun on this. Uh, the inflation rate has been dropping, you know, and it kind of stalled a little bit, but you know, it, nothing major. It's just sitting around four percent, and you know what? It, there's some talk that, you know, if there is another quarter percent interest rate hike, which just happened, perhaps this will bring us into a recession. And maybe that's what they want. Maybe there's still too much demand. Thankfully, mm. I don't make those high end decisions, but it is definitely having the impact on the economy already. It slowed things down and it has slowed down inflation. So yes, I was surprised they they increased it by another quarter percent because it takes eight months to a year yeah. for a rate to have an effect. So you know what? Did it make sense? My opinion, no, but hey, it's been done. And and so now everybody has to pay a little bit more on the lending side. Don Fox with his executive financial consultant with the Fox Group, IG Private Wealth Management. Make sure you're listening Saturday mornings for planning your financial future. Don, thanks for the time. Be well. Anytime, Scott. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We certainly know that the federal government has increased in size over the prime minister's tenure uh, by about 30 percent. But uh, also bonuses continue to be handed out in times where uh, a lot of people are really, really struggling. The federal government handed out $1.3 billion in bonuses uh, over uh, between the period of 2015 and 2022, according to documents obtained by the Canadian Taxpayers Federation through an access to information request. To talk more about all of this, Franco Terrazano with us, Canadian Taxpayers Federation Federal Director, and here now. Franco, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Hey, thanks for having me on today. So who gets a bonus? Who is it that's getting these bonus or bonuses or qualifies for them? Well, I mean, essentially every government executive is getting a bonus. Each year, about 90% of all the federal government executives, so the, the ones who are the up and up in the top of the bureaucracy, are getting a bonus. Now, what's so crazy about that is not one thing, okay? Uh, over the last couple years, the federal government departments have failed to meet half of their own performance targets. So I'm over here scratching my head, wondering how they're still getting bonuses when their departments, who they're in charge of, are failing to meet half of their own performance targets. I'm over here wondering if these government executives are getting a bonus just showing up to work uh, one day a week with their shoes tied. (laughs) So uh, what is the answer there? Uh, What does trigger a bonus? Do we know? Is there any sort of guidelines or or, uh, credentials to trigger a bonus? I mean, not that I've seen, not that I've seen, right? Because look, if you can't even meet half of your own performance targets, in what world do you deserve a bonus? Like, let me tell you, if I go up to my boss and say, yeah, boss, I think I did a great job this year. I met, I don't know, 48% of my own performance targets. My boss would show me the door. My boss Mm -hmm. would not be giving me an $18,000 bonus check. And the reason I say $18,000 is because that was the average bonus that a government executive got last year, 18,000 smackers. Now, let's set aside the, the, the part that we're handing out bonuses for failure here, because that's a huge part of the problem. And I wanna bring up something that you said at the beginning, is that they're handing out bonuses when so many Canadians have suffered. Look, the government, the federal government handed out uh, more than $500 million in bonuses during the pandemic years. 
So people were losing their jobs. People were taking pay cuts in the private sector. Small businesses were taking out a line of credit just to keep the lights on. And our government executives in Ottawa weren't even worried about missing a bonus. If we we certainly know with with the government officials and such, they're usually it's pretty easy to find their salaries if you want to go digging. They always do the sunshine list list as well uh, every year and such. Um, if we know the salaries, why wouldn't we know the credentials or what triggers a bonus? Well, the only reason we even know the sunshine list in Ottawa, just to be frank, is because of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. The federal government doesn't post a sunshine list. In fact, uh, the vast majority of provinces do. Ontario has a fantastic sunshine list, but the federal government doesn't. So the only reason that we know that there's more than 100,000 government bureaucrats in Ottawa that are making six-figure annual salaries is because the Canadian Taxpayers Federation filed those access to information requests. That's not posted online, that we had to dig that up. We also know that in addition to bonuses, the federal government handed out 800,000 pay raises during the pandemic years. On top of that, the federal government has also hired about 31,000 new employees over the last two years. So folks, this is what's been going on. We've been paying as taxpayers for hundreds of thousands of pay raises, for tens of thousands of new government bureaucrats, and for hundreds of millions in bonuses over the last couple years. Do we know what departments or what department heads got bonuses? Who did, uh, I guess, hit their target or try to? Well, who didn't get a bonus? And I know I'm making a joke here because all we got were the numbers, right? The top line numbers. We don't know which bureaucrats and which departments got it. But we do know that 90 percent. So every year, about 90 percent of government executives get a bonus. About 90%. Give or take, some years it's a little bit more, some years it's a little bit less, but every year it's about 90% of government executives that get a bonus, okay? For a total since 2015 of $1.3 billion in, in bonuses handed out. Now, there's one more angle of the story here. Since 2015, the total cost of these bonuses has increased by 46%. 46% increase since 2015 is the total cost of taxpayers for these bonuses. I wonder if anybody in travel or passports uh, um, got any <laughs> last year or so. Franco Terrasano with his Canadian Taxpayers Federation Federal Director. $1.3 billion in bonuses handed out from 2015 to 2022, uh, according to uh, documents that have been obtained by the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Franco, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Hey, have a great rest of your day. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. As you may or may not know, as you care or may not care, it's been a busy uh, few days for Prince Harry, the Duke of Sussex, as he took place his place on the witness stand in his trial against the Mirror Group of Newspapers uh, filing suit. Uh, this is over phone records and such. One of a group of four people who are suing uh, the newspaper group. To talk more about this, Alyssa Freeman, PR and pop culture expert and self-proclaimed royal expert. She is with us now. Alyssa, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Oh, I'm always up for talking about the Royal Scott. So thanks for inviting me. <laughs> well, then you can help me through this. So uh, what is this about? This is about tapping into phone records way back when our phone calls. Uh, give us an update here. 
This is all about overreach of the press in order to get the scoop, in order to get the story. So this is going by by, uh, any means possible in order to get information to sort of one up one another in terms of tabloid wards. Who has the best fodder? Who has the most salacious gossip? How far can we push this? How can we get more than than we already know? So if you think about, you know, the tabloids, you've ever been to England and you see them all lined up there at the newsstands and with screaming heads. Headlines, you know, that's tough to do day after day after day. And clearly the Royals are an absolute perfect target for that. So either they love them or they hate them. There is really no middle ground. So when it comes to selling papers or when it comes to, as we know now, clicks, uh, you know, papers will still, in some cases, go to any means possible in order to get the scoop. And it's about this invasion of privacy, this ultimate invasion of privacy, supposedly by tacked phones, using of burner phones, etc., then that is why Prince Harry is on the stand today. And this dates back quite a while. It does. It dates back to his mum, and he really did uh, go into detail about that, which I was kind of surprised because it must dredge up like lots of horrible feelings for him. So, you know, he does have a point. The British press has, uh, in many cases, no sense of morality. It's gloves off and everything is off on the table. And there was a time when they really did get away with that because nobody would sue them. It would just take far too much money and resources to do it. So you sort of had to live with it other than giving you know cease and desist um orders but there had there was a time when they really did cross the line and i think we've all heard those salacious stories about when they tapped charles's phone when he was talking to camilla and and i mean while it was sort of you know titillating i guess to hear about it and read about it it sort of made you cringe, and a lot of it was cringeworthy. But there was no real way to stop them because there is a saying I think we have in PR is, you know, don't go, don't try and go up against somebody who pays for ink by the barrel because there's no way that you'll ever win. So based on that, many people just, you know, they took it. They thought, you know, tabloids are essentially a fact of life and we're just going to have to deal with them. So here we have Prince Harry, who is very high profile and has done everything high profile possible known to humankind right now to tell their story. They were on Oprah, they had the Netflix special, but honestly, none of it ever landed. I mean, it did land and it didn't land. There was a lot of there's a lot of missing details and there was a lot of conjecture and there's a lot of speculation. Some people bought it, some people didn't. So I guess by being on the stand and pouring out his life's details in front of a court would they felt would certainly have more impact. The only thing is, Scott, is that nobody can prove if any laws were broken. And I don't think that that is the point of this because they can't prove that the press had burner phones. They can't prove that they were hacked into. So there's no real factual evidence that will, you know, take any of these tabloids down, I believe. But I think in the court of moral opinion, the court of morality, I think that that is the ultimate goal where the point is trying to be made. You wouldn't wouldn't you think that the royals would have deep enough pockets to trace this and find out exactly what the origins were or the proof needed to prove these cases? You know, maybe, but maybe they just didn't want to go down that road. 
you know, I think that they have their own people within the palace that deal with the press all the time. And, you know, there have been accusations by Harry and Meghan that said, you know, stories were planted against them. So, you know, every time Meghan did something, it was wrong. And then every time Kate did something, it was right. So I think they had their own forces that they would use um, in order to try and spin the narrative. Do I think that, you know what, who knows, maybe they did uh, use their own resources and find out what was going on. And a lot of this is sort of behind closed doors. Who knows? But, you know, the queen, when she was alive, it was more about stiff upper lip, you know, don't give them any quarter and just put your head down and do the job. Because if you were screaming after every single thing that the tabloids were screaming about, that's all you would be doing all the time, every day. So uh, what's the outcome here? What happens next? Uh, Does this change anything? You know, I think that the only thing that it can change is that if people stop consuming the information, if people, the consumers of information like you and I and everybody else out there, you know, they see a story that has something about Harry or Meghan and they just don't read it. They just don't click on it. They just ignore it. So, you know, when something isn't read or something is found to be boring or not gathering an audience, there's only one thing to do when you're the media. It's stop airing it or stop running it. So until people stop consuming royal information, stop being interested in anything to do with the royals, the papers are still going to do what they're going to do. And they have been um, successfully sued in some cases for millions of pounds. And, uh, you know, they were sort of caught um, in that case. But there's, you know, most of the time they're not. So I think what Harry is trying to do is to make a point. But, you know, you and I were also on the radio a few weeks ago when we said that they were in a quote unquote high speed chase in New York and they feared for their lives. And this high speed chase coincidentally took place just prior to this court appearance. So I think that there's other things that they're trying to get at in terms of um, security and protection, et cetera. I don't know. I mean, there's always sort of a long game with Harry and Meghan. Right now, this is just the short game. So I'm wondering what that long game is and what their ultimate goal is, is by going through all these machinations of of testifying in court. Well, he left to get away with this, and here he is coming back, stoking the fire. It just seems odd. But I guess this is past business that is just coming to fruition now. Uh, Alyssa Freeman with us, PR and pop culture expert. Alyssa, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. And you too, Scott. Ta-ta. Earlier this week, we were talking to uh, Tim Danson, uh, the lawyer for the French and Mahaffey families whose daughters uh, were killed at the hands of Paul Bernardo and his wife uh, through horrific murders that we all remember very well and the trial and such which followed. And uh, Paul Bernardo being declared a dangerous offender, that was supposed to be that, and justice was done. We hear earlier on this week that Paul Bernardo has in fact been transferred from a maximum security prison here, Kingston rather, and uh, to a medium security prison in Quebec. To talk more about all of this and can it be reversed? Will it? Jeff Manishin is with us, criminal lawyer, Ross McBride, former Crown attorney, and with us now. Jeff, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Yes, just fine, Scott. How about you? So far, so good. Jeff, will this be turned around? Do you think this will be reversed? I wouldn't be surprised, but maybe that's being on the cynical side. We've seen this kind of situation before where an administrative decision is made with respect to classification of an offender 
and there's a significant public and or political outcry, and then it's reviewed further and that decision is changed. Um, so I, I wouldn't be surprised. The, the real issue it doesn't become um, the strength of the, va the reasons for the transfer, but rather how it plays. Uh, many are, uh, corrections are saying they're going to review this. Uh, obviously, many are asking the question, well, wouldn't this have been reviewed beforehand? I'm sure it was. Why won't they tell us the reason or the families the reason why this is even happening? I think if we went back a step, and the question, uh, Scott, and it's a good one, is the timing of telling anything in the way of reasons. Um, it's an area, I have to tell you, I haven't really dealt with much before, but it would appear that Correction services of Canada and parole authorities have, or the correction services, have a discretion where the public interest in sharing some information with victims outweighs the privacy interest of the individual, that they can share with victims' families why uh, decisions made, for example, to reclassify an offender. It would appear that wasn't done before they did this, the, the transfer, and I guess it hasn't been done yet. That's not to say it can't be, Scott. I mean, it could be open for them to say we've reviewed it and the error we've made, if any, or we've reviewed it. And on further review, it is appropriate to share with the victims, uh, the families of the victims, the reasons for the transfer. They might just do so. Um, so I can't really say why they haven't, but it may well be right now. They're saying privacy interest supersedes. So one of two pathways could be followed. They could say, well, here are the reasons. Then there'll be the inevitable criticism of the validity of the reason. So that won't resolve it. They can give the reasons, they'll still be the same outcry, and then they're going to be left in the same position saying, well, we still believe it was for a sound reason, and we're going to leave it the way it is. Or alternatively say, oh, okay, uh, we'll switch and we'll transfer them back. Or they might simply say, yeah, we've reviewed it further and we're going to transfer them back. Uh, Paul Bernardo was classified as a dangerous offender. That was an extra process that the lawyer, Tim Danson, had to go through uh, because this was the baddest of the bad. This was horrific. This was beyond, you know, whatever. Um, why wouldn't that raise any red flags? Like, of all of the people we should be moving, this would be the last one. Or this would be the last type of person we would do this for. What is the significance of the dangerous offender? designation let's talk about that that's a good one scott i don't think tim danson uh, had it happen that he was dealt with as a dangerous offender you may recall historically that bernardo had been charged with offenses for being the individual who was referred to as the scarborough rapists do you remember that yep 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 and that there were multiple sexual assaults occurring in that area they hadn't found somebody and they ultimately built enough of a case to show it was him the question was then after the convictions on the French Mahaffey murders, you still want to proceed against him on the Scarborough rapes. And they did. And he was found to be a dangerous offender. And the difference for a dangerous offender status, Scott, has nothing to do with classification once in the penitentiary. That's not what it figures into. We know that someone with convicted of first degree murder gets life, no parole for 25. Or somebody categorized as a dangerous offender, there isn't a parole eligibility. The basic incarceration a judge may order it for an indefinite period of time. So there's no specific parole eligibility date for a dangerous offender. The matter can be, I think, is reviewed or it can be reviewed every few years. That's what the dangerous offender status is. So think of it as an additional basis to be jailed besides the life imprisonment. So that's what the dangerous offender status is. That has nothing to do with, quote, maximum security classification or medium. 
That's clearly. Uh, So um, that being said, um, uh, what can the prime minister do? What can politicians do? Because, again, this criminal was supposed to be the baddest of the bad and they don't get any of the special treatment. So um, once you're considered a dangerous offender, obviously that has nothing to do with what type of institution you're in or the classification, as you if you said. What does the prime minister do to fill this loophole? Well, what's a special treatment, Scott? Well, he's getting moved from a maximum security uh, uh, prison to a medium security prison, and we're not told why. No, no, but that's not the special treatment part. Okay, let's let's untangle that for a second. What the institution has to do, the penitentiary has to do a classification of the individual based on a variety of factors. And some of those could be escape. Some of those could be risk that they might pose to other offenders. Some of them might be risk they may themselves be facing from other offenders. Some of them may have to do with the particular programs they may or may not have to go through. Those are all factors that go into whether the individual upon arrival at the penitentiary is classified to go into maximum security or medium or minimum. It's not what is and isn't more punitive. So for example, being jailed in a maximum security pen or being jailed in a minimum in a medium security pen you may have very similar conditions of incarceration there are just other factors that go into what kind of risk the person may pose so for him 30 years ago plus they categorized him as maximum security it's more than 30 years now isn't it so now he's in custody for that period of time they may say gee at the age of 55 he doesn't represent as much of a risk to others or risk of escaping we don't need to use the maximum security classification. He can be medium security. That's not special treatment. That's just categorizing them differently. And they've simply categorized him for medium security, and he's in a penitentiary in Quebec. I, I guess many would say, I don't know yeah. whether the conditions at the penitentiary in Quebec are any more harsh, less harsh, or the same as the maximum security. But everybody jumps to the conclusion, oh, media must be special treatment. That's wait, not wait, 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 wait. Okay, okay. Scott, we have to do identify that? I understand what you're saying here, but one of the most notorious criminals in Canada, uh, he's been designated a dangerous offender, and we're not hearing the reasons why he has been moved from a maximum to a medium security prison. So if you don't do it for one of the most notorious criminals in Canada, murderers, if you don't do it for a dangerous offender, who do you do it for? Right, a bit different. Oh, he, he's still the same guy, but he's, but he's still trying to get... ...and then reclassified for murder and other offenses. There's no standing policy that every time we do it, we have to do a press release. Okay, start with that. The, the, issue, the individual, while incarcerated, has some privacy rights. That's number one. Number two, to answer the question of could the reasons be released, they may yet be. So we'll come back to that. And the third one, what can the prime minister do or the minister of, of public safety, Minister Mendocino, they don't have the authority to make the classification decisions. Those are for the penitentiary, the Correctional Services of Canada. They can express some concern. They can express some influence. But those are administrative decisions that have been around forever for those institutions. That's their job. We don't have politicians necessarily get to tell individual institutions, here's what you should do with this guy. That's not the role of the prime minister or the uh, cabinet minister. I understand. That's that's left to the Correctional Services of Canada. Has this been handled correctly in your mind? Well, that's such a that's such a difficult question to answer when I don't know the reasons. I would say nobody this, knows correct? the reasons, Jeff. What's that's correct? the problem. Correct from a public relations standpoint, or correct in terms of how an institution should decide a balance between privacy interests and public interest. 
could you say, gee, it had to inevitably get public interest. Why didn't you tell people the reasons beforehand? You can make a darn good argument. Will they do it now? You can make a darn good argument. But Garrett, let's take it to the next step, Scott. So let's say they've got two pages of detailed reasons that are all institutional-based, inmate-based, or otherwise. Will that be enough? Uh, again, you know, uh, at the end of the day, Jeff, we can go into legalese and around and, and, and only those with your education are going to understand it. We believe no, no, it in, is, we it believe in legalese. You I know, reasons, I know, I know. So we, how come we, we don't know the reasons? That's not legalese, Scott. If uh, you were uh, given the reasons, again, again, isn't the legalese uh, question, would that be enough? I think the majority of Canadians think this has been handled incredibly poorly. And, uh, you, and you have and, the and, reasons, Scott. And, and instead would you of saying, okay, I'm content with the transfer? No, no. I understand. Uh, <laughs> Uh, that would, would be anybody, another discussion. Would anybody? No, no. no I don't think you. they would. If we say and, my business, no further questions. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Jeff. Thanks for the time. Jeff Madison, criminal lawyer, Ross McBride, former Crown attorney. Jeff, thank you so much. Be well. Certainly, Scott. Good chatting. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We have talked about this at length, and the Canadian auto insurance uh, insurers lost more than $1 billion with a B last year from stolen vehicles as organized crime rings pushed car thefts up by nearly car thefts up by nearly 50% through Ontario and Quebec. In a report released uh, Tuesday, the insurance industry nationally lost more than $1 billion in theft claims in 2022, up from $700 million in 2021. To talk more, Lorraine Sommerfeld is with us, columnist with Driving.ca and the Hamilton Spectator, and is with us now. Lorraine, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. How you doing? So far, so good. You? Oh, good. Good. So we've talked about this before and about, you know, yeah. do insurance companies and whatever just bake all these prices in so there's not another we can do about it. It just goes up, so we're just going to live with it and, and bake the price in. But when you're seeing uh, these stats go up year to year to year, is there any more interest in solving this problem? I think we need a multi-pronged approach to it. Um, and I want to start with the manufacturers. They could be building better theft deterrent systems into their cars right at base level. So they need to do more. Um, provincial government just finally put some more money behind it. There's dedicated task force because it is organized crime. Most mm-hmm. of these cars in Quebec and Ontario are going out through the Port of Montreal. It's like a funnel. They know where they're going. Yeah, and, yeah. But they're also working with Interpol and RCMP and around the world now to track them down. So they're finally starting to but that billion that disappeared it's coming out of my pocket and yours uh less electronics we've talked about this you know you said uh, auto industry could do more to make them less uh capable of being stolen but then we hear that well you know anytime you come up with that then thieves are just going to come up with one better blah 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 is this a vicious circle or can they actually get a handle on this (laughs) hear that pause um (laughs) yeah it's tech it's like a computer, they can always hack into every single computer. So ultimately, all we're doing is try to make somebody steal someone else's car. That hmm. is what all the theft deterrent stuff is doing. So in a way, you're right, it's chasing your tail. But what bothers me as a consumer is the aftermarket stuff is expensive, and we're being told, and I'm telling people, this is what you're going to have to do to not have your car stolen. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have to spend thousands of dollars after I've, after I've already spent tens of thousands of dollars to keep it safe. 
it's just abysmal. It's, it's interesting you should say that because I'm in Canadian Tire the other day on doing something else, and I happened to walk through the automotive department, and there's a club. And I remember I bought a club yeah. like a long time oh, ago, yeah. and I haven't yeah. used it forever. Um, and I'm like, it's like it's like a hundred bucks. They're back <laughs> thinking, in style. It's like a hundred <laughs> bucks. I think I paid twenty five bucks for mine way back oh. when. Hey, my father didn't have his topaz stolen because he had a club. (laughs) See, there's proof positive. Now, he probably, the topaz probably also had a key. Uh, And we've, and I mean, am I just being an old fart here? Or is, uh, if we go back to a standard key, does this become more difficult? Or is it just the old days they go underneath the dashboard, they pull a few wires and off they go? Well, I mean, they'll do that, but you're absolutely right. I I despise key fobs and electronic opening. This is where they got their big opening, and this is why they're stealing such expensive cars so easily with relay stuff. They can interrupt the signal. The thing is, as soon as you put your key in a Faraday pouch or telling people to put it in foil, all this stuff, they go on to another one. So, yes, they want the fobs, but what they're doing is going directly into there's an ODB port in your car, which is where your mechanic can yeah. Yeah. a code to see what's it. They go right into that, and they're rejigging their own fobs, so they don't even need the fobs anymore. They're they're coding their own in your driveway before they go away. Yeah. So even if you know, it, it would be. I'd like to go back to keys. I think um, it would solve a lot of problems that we're having, but that's not going back in the in the bottle. There's no way. But I think I was talking to the head guy or Akitavia Investigations, which is the numbers you're quoting. You know, we're yeah. like 50%. And I said to him, I go, okay, what would you do for your car? He goes, if I had all the money in the world and wanted to protect my car, he goes, a Faraday pouch, an OBD lock, and a mobilizer that's an aftermarket, a sophisticated kill switch, and a tracker. I'm yeah. like, that's five different aftermarket things. He goes, that's how, he goes, if you want to protect, I know one of my insurance broker quote people. Uh, Land Rover was stolen. They replaced it. It was stolen again. They replaced it again. Stolen again. And I've heard that with several from several places. So, what can the manufacturer do? Well, I mean, they have some of the more sophisticated things have immobilizers and tracking systems in the car. Right. Right now, the best tracking stuff is aftermarket stuff because they hide trackers all over, and they they go into sleep mode. So even if thieves are scanning the car looking for where you have a tracker and like an Apple AirTag people is not going to do it. They find it and rip them out. So the aftermarket ones go into sleep mode. They can't find them to scan them. And it's a case of they can't catch all of us because they tag it all over the car. But I mean, this stuff is not cheap. And some insurance companies now are paying some of their up-end customers to put this stuff in their cars. They're saying, we'll pay for it. Go put it in. It's the only way to stop the cars from being ripped off. But, I, I mean, generally, I can sit there and spout all these things. Yeah. And put it in the garage and do this. We shouldn't have to live this way. <laughs> Good point. Oh, yeah. Uh, Lorraine Sommerfeld with us, columnist with Driving.ca and the Hamilton Spectator, trying to keep your car safe. Lorraine, as always, thanks for the time. I'm sure we'll chat about this again. Be well. Oh, we will. You too. Bye-bye, Scott. 
Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Conservative leader Pierre Polyevra says his party is willing to work through the summer to drastically change the Liberal government's budget bill and is calling on Prime Minister Justin Trudeau to revoke the budget and table a new one. To talk about all of this, leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, MP for Carleton, Ontario, Pierre Polyevra. Pierre, thank you so much for the time. Hope you're well. Likewise, great to be with you. So before we get to the budget, and I know you want to talk about this, I've just got to ask you a question about the whole public inquiry and the David Johnston thing. We had Jugmeet Singh on, leader of the NDP, on earlier the week. I'm pinning him about you know what it takes to leverage the government to get a public inquiry. He said he was going to take the CSIS security meeting, and then if he feels so, and he says he's inclined to think he still is, he will then call a public inquiry. Why not take this meeting, this top security meeting that they're they're always complaining you're not taking and then just say okay great still nothing's changed for me i want a public inquiry because they what they want to do is swear me to secrecy they put a bunch of paper in front of me in that meeting stamp it secret and then they'll say you can't talk about any of this anymore and i won't be able to do my job as leader of the opposition but can't you say you still want a public inquiry but unfortunately i can't say why for security reasons because they made me sign this thing Yes, but I wouldn't be able to talk about the substance of many of the issues that I'm now able to talk about because I would have been brought in and sworn to secrecy on the matters. So I need to be able to communicate to hold the government accountable. I can't do it with a muzzle on my face. And uh, that means uh, I I don't want to accept uh, an oath of secrecy. All right, let's move on to delaying the budget. Uh, You say you want to work through the summer to drastically change the budget. Uh, I can imagine what the response is from the Prime Minister. What's your objective here? Well, look, a lot has changed since Trudeau introduced his inflationary budget. Uh, Back in March, he introduced $60 billion of additional spending measures above and beyond the normal spending the government does and that 60 billion works out to forty two hundred dollars a family as you know in deficit spending drives inflation now, even christia freeland his finance minister admitted that she said it pours fuel on the inflationary fire i couldn't agree more uh, what i want is them to stop pouring that fuel on the fire since the budget came out Three things have happened. One, inflation started to rise again after the prime minister promised it would only fall. Two, uh, that had drove up interest rates on already cash-strapped and heavily indebted Canadian households. And three, the IMF said Canada is the country most likely to have a mortgage default crisis. Why? Because we have over $2 trillion of household debt. We're the most indebted households of any G7 country. Uh, And when all of those mortgages, those mega million-dollar mortgages that Canadians took out over the last several years come up for renewal at higher rates, people will be paying $1,400 or $1,500 a month more in, in, in monthly payments. Many will go bankrupt or have to sell their houses suddenly in order to avoid the payments, and very few people will be able to buy The only way to avoid that is to get inflation and interest rates down before it happens. And the way to do that is to balance the budget so that we can reduce inflation and interest rates. 
You've talked in the past about reducing, and many have, reducing uh, the carbon tax, giving Canadians a break during this time. However, obviously now we're seeing unprecedented wildfires throughout the country, which obviously is going to have more chatter towards climate change and the environment. Uh, do you think that that will work against uh, trying to get a reduction in carbon tax? Canadians thinking, well, we got to pay the carbon tax in order to stop this. Oh, really? Does anybody believe that paying higher taxes is going to stop forest fires? Really? Come on. we got to have some common sense here. Uh, the reality is that uh, uh, what we need to do to stop forest fires is to have more water bombers, tougher penalties for arsonists, a more coordinated response to fires when they're lit. And we need to go to technology and not taxes to fight climate change. That's exactly what I will do. I'll approve more hydroelectricity, more nuclear electricity, more carbon capture and storage, tidal power, and other carbon-free electricity. Make it more affordable to use carbon-free energy rather than making it more expensive for Canadians. Trudeau wants to raise the carbon tax from 14 cents a litre to 61 cents a litre. That's not just going to drive up gas, but also heat and groceries. Because when you tax the farmer's fuel and the trucker's fuel... They have to charge more for the groceries they bring us, and that'll mean more expensive food, more people going hungry. I'll ax the tax to bring home lower prices. Uh, on the wildfires, do you think uh, the concern over this will focus our attention more on ridding the world of coal? Uh, Canada being seen as a solution here with its Canadian liquid natural gas and such. Does this focus our attention on what we need to do to solve the problem as opposed to just the politics of the day and, and the extremes? Yeah, because the single biggest reduction in greenhouse gases ever achieved was when the Americans moved from coal to natural gas-powered electricity. Gas produces half the greenhouse gases for each unit of energy it generates, Um, and we have 1,200 trillion cubic feet of natural gas that we could be selling to Europe to break the European dependence on Putin and to Asia to break Asian use of coal-fired electricity. Um, We have uh, only, Trudeau has had uh, on his desk 15 different natural gas export plants. When he took office eight years ago, zero have been completed. Uh, One was approved and it's not yet done. That project is the single biggest infrastructure project in our history. And even the Trudeau government admits that it will massively reduce global greenhouse gas emissions because it will displace coal-powered energy in Asia. What we need to do is approve more of those projects. That's what I will do by removing the regulatory obstacles, delays, and gatekeepers to speed up approval and greenlight these green projects. Pierre Polyevre with us, leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, MP for Carleton, Ontario. Pierre Polyevre, thank you for the time. Be well. Thank you very much. It's common sense. Let's bring it home. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. The federal government wants MPs to make their option to virtually participate in House business, including committees, a permanent fixture. You might remember this was a big deal a while ago, uh, and there was a big push to get federal employees back to work and uh, a few months ago, I guess now. And, and, of course, then the blowback started, and we certainly know uh, what the result of that is. There was also uh, contract talks and negotiations 
negotiations going on. So this was sort of woven into part of of what the agreement is. And now we're seeing on Thursday, government House leader Mark Holland announced plans. Uh, and he has said he expects MPs to vote on this issue before they leave the Commons for a summer break uh, coming up June 23rd. June 23rd, the House of Commons scheduled to rise uh, for the summer. Let's bring in Peter Grant, professor of political science, McMaster University. He is with us now. Peter, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am, thanks. Hope you're well, too. So, Peter, why is this happening now, do you think? Because it wasn't that long ago there was a big shove to get them back. Then there was the negotiations that were going on. Why do you think this is happening now? Well, uh, I mean, I think there was the adoption of this hybrid system, uh, you know, where MPs could participate in person or from, uh, you know, uh, from back in their constituencies or elsewhere in Canada as part of the pandemic. But it was uh, adopted on a year by year basis. So we're kind of coming up to uh, the point where that needs to be uh, renewed. And I guess the point here from the, the government and, you know, building on some reports uh, and studies that were done through the last fall and then proposes that it become a, a permanent fixture so that you don't have to uh, renew it every year. And so it would then presumably remain in place until some future you know, government uh, proposed a change to the, the standing orders to bring it back, say, to fully in person. We're all still trying to figure out what the new normal is, but obviously uh, it has changed, that's for sure. What about the pros and cons when it comes to politics? Because some industries are easier than others to do this. Are, are there pros and cons of having a virtual participation? Well, I mean, I guess see, the pros that we've heard the most from the, the people who, who like the, the move to the hybrid is that uh, it enables uh, much greater sort of flexibility in terms of where you have to be so that parliamentarians don't necessarily give up as much of their home lives uh, when they become members of parliament. I mean, it's maybe less of an issue if you're coming from Hamilton, although even there it's, you know, a weekly trip up to Ottawa. It's maybe more of an issue if you're coming from northern BC. So the idea ultimately that you can be present in your riding, uh, being, you know, able to uh, participate in activities, uh, uh, be present for your constituents at the same time as you can participate in what's going on in Ottawa. Uh, so, I mean, I think that's the, been the main uh, positive feature that's been put forward. The negative side of it, I think there's, you know, two important ones. You know, the Conservatives have pushed this idea that there's less accountability with it. And certainly we've watched enough courtroom dramas to know that, you know, when you have the the people in the room and they're being grilled, there's an immediacy to that. You know, when you're grilling someone on a TV screen, uh, I don't know, it looks maybe more like Star Trek. It doesn't have the same ability to really capture people's uh, attention in that bringing accountability. So I think that's one concern. And the other, which may be more important in the long run, is that there's a lot that gets done and that makes things functional around the edges of meetings. You know, when you're leaving a meeting and uh, you say, speak to the person on the, the opposite side of the issue and say, OK, well, here's here's a compromise we can have, or here's a way of working out this issue that's facing us, uh, or how how could we work together on this other question? Those kinds of conversations are unlikely to happen when people are just turning off their cameras. And so we may get parliamentarians who are, are less capable at doing, you know, the work of, you know, coming up with uh, solutions uh, through those those conversations. It probably suits the leaders of the parties fine in a way because it means they can really run the show in Ottawa. But if you want to see the the sort of ordinary members of parliament have a bit more capacity to to push their agendas, uh, I think that's uh, what gets lost uh, in in this process. Uh, their abilities to kind of to stand up to their their parties and say no, we we can find other solutions or there's compromises or different ways of doing things. And then it's just you know the the white on one side and black on the other 
that we see from our political parties. And that's, you know, a common uh, a common herd issue with business, uh, any industry, obviously the, de- uh, the debating, the brainstorming, the human face-to-face connection that you can have. Should there be guidelines here, how much you can and can't do, or is it just, you know, you, know, you can either come in or stay out? Should there be guidelines or limitations in some way? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, there should be some, yeah, some guidelines. I mean, at the very least, even for expenses when, uh, you know, members of parliament, you know, can claim expenses for having to rent an apartment in Ottawa, for instance. Uh, but if they're only going to parliament five times a year, that seems, uh, you know, a bit excessive, right? So even just at sort of basic aspects of economy, uh, you know, I think that's an issue. But yeah, I think uh, if this is a way that parliament is going to go, I mean, we could change governments and then just be back to the old ways. But uh, you know, if, if we continue down this road, I think it does require some rules to make sure that, for instance, cabinet ministers do show up in person for um, uh, for question period at a you know a certain uh, regularity. That there's an expectation that they appear before uh, committees uh, in person, you know, where possible. You know, I think there's a number of things that could be done to uh, try and ensure that uh, some of the accountability features uh, are more present. Um, yeah, and to also make sure that the members of parliament are, are there uh, frequently enough that they can discharge their duties that take place at parliament, uh, you know, including their ability to work with colleagues, uh, not just in, in the chamber, but around it. Uh, as you mentioned, and I never thought of that, but it, obviously they all have to go to Ottawa, live in Ottawa. Uh, can you do both? Uh, how do you police that? Uh, and again, is there room for taking advantage of the situation if, like you said, you're claiming for an apartment or whatever uh, in Ottawa, and yet you're not there half the time or whatever? I, again, depending upon what the guidelines are, there seems to be more room to fudge things here. Um, is it tough to do both? Well, I mean, I suspect, you know, out of 300 members of parliament, there will be, uh, you know, a few who are a bit venal and uh, cause issues. <laughs> and I suspect out of that, we'll get some rules developed in terms of uh, of what's uh, expected or what's possible around that. So there may be ways in which, you know, members will be, you know, required to uh, be present at a certain amount if they're going to claim certain kinds of expenses. So my sense is that those guidelines aren't there and what's being proposed so far, but uh you know, it takes uh, it takes a scandal, I guess, uh, to ultimately chasten chasten a government and make them come up with uh, better internal processes for for controlling those kinds of expenses. Do you think this has anything to do with government employees or any of the deals or contracts that they got? We remember what happened a few months ago when they were ordered back. Yeah, well, I mean, I think certainly uh, those employees are are going to ask how come uh, you know they're being pushed to to show up at work and yet uh, the you know members of parliament themselves got themselves a different deal. And so, you know, this this argument has been made already and the response of most parliamentarians is somehow, well, our job is very different, uh, you know, which is partially true in, mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, the commuting distance from uh, Victoria to uh, Ottawa is a bit different than your average civil servant, but it's, you know, also a bit self-serving. And so, uh, you know, it'll be interesting to see, you know, whether this is seen as uh, a useful thing, right, where we get members of parliament who are more present in our constituencies. A lot of people say they want that. They want their members to be not off in Ottawa, but to understand what's going on on the ground. Um, but, you know, on the other the other side of it, they maybe be seen as uh, being special in, in being able to choose these hybrid uh, work arrangements when in a number of other fields, people are losing their ability to, to have that kind of control over their work.
Peter Grip with us, professor of political science, McMaster University, talking about virtual and hybrid uh, governments. Peter, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. And you too. Coming up after the 6 o'clock news, the Scott Radley Show. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is here now. Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am doing well. You know, we should start a thing on this uh, this segment where you have to guess, or one of us has to guess, the artist and the song that Ben plays coming in. Do you know who that was? Uh, that was Spin Doctor. Way to uh, go. Little, little Miss Can't Be Wrong. Uh, well, Two Princes. But you got the oh, was it Two doc- Princes? I'm sorry. But you got I'm the sorry. Spin Doctors part. Well done, which is what like all we deal with every day now, right? That's all we deal with every day is Spin Doctors. <laughs> Uh, that was the second single off that album. Great debut album. I saw them actually roping up for the Rolling Stones. Wow. Look at you. I See, I thought we were going to trip you up, but there is no tripping <laughs> up, Scott Thompson, afternoon DJ. Usually on music, I'm pretty good. Anything else? Forget it, man. I'm done. Uh, what are your thoughts on the wildfires and everything that's going on? Um, it's funny how all of a sudden we're seeing the extremists come out of the woodwork now, and, uh, you know, this is more reason to, of course, stop driving and and, and and fuel and such, and, and I don't want to get caught up in that debate because I believe the solution is in the center uh, by getting the world off of cold, but, uh, coal, but that's me. Uh, what are your thoughts of what we're seeing and the concern of everybody and, and what is going on? To your point, can I just ask one very broad question? Is there anything yeah. that anybody does at any time, anywhere, that somebody will not politicize? I don't think so. I, I, I no. like, truly, I don't think there is anything now that someone on one side of the political aisle or other will not turn into some kind of argument to politicize the issue and make it bad. And you're a something, ist, ism, whatever, phobic, you know whatever. Why? why? Because we live in a land of extremes. There is no common ground. There is no agreeing to disagree. Uh, Since social media is now such a big part of our lives, it has given a platform for those on the extremes. The extremes have now become the mainstream. I don't believe the majority are on the extremes. I don't believe that at all. That's why Canada votes to the left. Then they vote to the right. Then they vote to the left. Then they vote to the right. Then they vote to the left and vote to the right. So yeah, it's to me, it's extremism. I agree with you, and I and and I look at social media, which I think is one of the big culprits in this, and I say, okay, it amplifies the opinions and the extreme opinions, but we're not just talking about the Looney Tunes who are on either side of the extremes on social media. We have our politicians fighting about this, and we have everybody trying to score political points. And, you know, just, and what has become really difficult now is even trying to wade through, even if you want to find a fact, for example, Scott, like, uh, let me give you one. We're talking about, about, um, you know, fires and these kind of things. Go try and find out a number, an actual real number number for how many forest fires there were last year or the year before. And it's almost impossible to get anything that would compare because someone will say, yeah, but this was not really this. And so what we hear is either, well, arson has nothing to do with it and it's all climate change or there's <laughs> exactly. no climate change. Like It's a bit of everything. But you can't find, like, I, I like to believe that you could go and find out and say, oh, okay, so we've got this many forest fires that are burning now. How many forest fires did we have burning, let's say, 10 years ago? 
and find a clear number and then say, oh, so is there a difference or is it just that these ones are really bad and because of the wind and everything else? Like, but it's almost impossible to wade through all of the agendas to get an actual real look at a number that we could then use our brains and make a good decision on because we've all dug in. Most people have dug in and there's no changing minds and anyone who doesn't agree with them is wrong Not, and more than wrong. They're evil and they want horrible things for the planet or they want horrible <laughs> things for other people, period. There's no, you know, if you don't believe that this is the result of climate change, Scott, you're an evil yeah. person. And if you do believe this is climate change, you're an evil person. So where do we go? I guess everybody's just evil now. Well, in in the eyes of, of somebody, you and I and everyone listening are completely not only misguided... But you are truly, you you don't care. You hate people. You hate this. You hate that. I mean, it, Scott, it becomes so depressing at times that you would like to think that, as I say, that you could work through and get an answer and then present a fact and someone would say, oh, okay, I didn't know that. Maybe this time I was wrong or maybe this time there's an explanation that I didn't have and now I'll change my opinion. I don't see that ever happening. Nobody changes their mind now because it's it's no longer about even a position. It's almost become a religious thing. You believe yeah. all of it entirely and unquestioningly or you don't. Meet me in the middle. There is no Scott such thing. Radley coming up after the Scott uh, after the six o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. Scott, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. See you, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from three to six on nine hundred CHML and online at nine hundred CHML As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. This time from uh, Georgina via email. With all the talk about wildfires and them being human-caused, maybe we should bring back Smokey the Bear to teach us all a few lessons. Nighty-night.